0: your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, we have a very special episode today. This week, Doc is visiting Liberty University, where Inner Armor works with student athletes, both men and women, in every sport. Today, we have Chris Casola, Liberty's Associate Athletics Director for Student Athlete Welfare and Performance. Now, Chris is a genuine innovator and a highly creative integrator in collegiate athletics on really the cutting edge of finding new ideas, new methodologies new technologies, new tools to forge 21st century student-athletes. In fact, Doc says that Chris deserves the credit for coming up with the concept of dynamic resilience, which is a cornerstone of Inner Armor's approach. So, Chris, welcome to the Inner Armor podcast. Doc has told me so much about you and how much you've contributed to Inner Armor's approach and growth. And so I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on forging stronger student-athletes.
1: Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. Chris, I'm glad to be here with you too. This is awesome. Look at this. We get to rehash the history that brought us to this point. It's exciting.
0: So this is kind of fun for me to see the two of you because I've heard a lot of stories, but maybe kind of hear the two of you describe how you met, how you began working together, and how that relationship was the genesis for a lot of the things that Inner Armor is doing today.
2: Yeah. So I guess I'll go first, right? So there's the long version and the short version. I'm sure I'll try to tell the short version, but our first meeting was at a Cracker Barrel across the street <laughs> from, from the university. I, I'd come back to Liberty probably about five and a half years ago. And one of the first meetings that some of the folks here set up for me was with Dr. Royer. They said, you got to meet Dr. Royer. You got to go talk to him and find out what he's doing and what we've been doing. And so we met at Cracker Barrel and had breakfast. And uh, we were probably there for about two hours. Yeah. Just talking about what they were doing and his background and the science. And I was sold. I knew immediately that this was something that we had to continue. And then over time, develop and figure out new strategies for how we could scale the program out to affect all of our student-athletes, not just a handful of people. My background was a lot in performance, but mostly sports medicine. And so I'm a frustrated clinician. I had been <laughs> for 30 years, meaning that a lot of the things that I was seeing, a lot of the things that I was trying to fix and deal with to keep student-athletes on the field, I felt like a lot of it was really preventable. And so when I started talking with Doc and kind of hearing what he was doing, it was a real simple connection for me and really began a journey of trying to find strategies and ways with all the things we're required to do for our student athletes on this level. How can we find tools that are not only improve performance, improve development that move the needle forward, but are also preventative with so many of the things that we're dealing with in society?
0: You know, Chris, in that first meeting at Cracker Barrel there, with your background, what were the things about Doc's approach that were the sort of bright points of contrast between what he was talking about and how traditionally student athletes were cared for?
2: Well, I think just the fact that you could have a roadmap for student athletes, right? For what really development is, you know, talking about physiological strategies to give people the tools to control their autonomic nervous system, right? So that was not something that anyone at that point, certainly that I was uh, all that familiar with and even thought that that was, you know, a possibility that you could actually look at a student athlete's brain and kind of see how they were processing life and see how they were The filter that they were using and that you could have interventions that would create strategies for coaches or for academic folks or even for athletic trainers or strength coaches that were trying to make an impact and move the dial for these student athletes that you could have some tools that would take you literally four or five years working with an individual. You could have these things immediately at your fingertips and thinking about how we could use these these tools. You only have student athletes on the collegiate level for one to four five years, maybe. And you have to do a lot with them. You have to unpack a lot in order to move the needle forward for them. And to be able to get your fingers on something that can give you those tools almost immediately, the learning curve is just reduced tenfold. Chris, you
0: said something there that really intrigued me and something that Doc and I have talked a lot about, which is the notion of silos within the field, right? So you've got your strength trainer, you've got your nutritionist, you've got these different sort of silos. And everybody, as Doc points out, everybody is really, really, really good, but they operate within their silo. And Doc has always had this vision for integrating those and bridging those. Doc, you want to jump in and talk a little bit about that conversation that you and Chris had and just a little bit of the epiphany that came about and thinking differently about this with Chris and at Liberty?
1: Yeah. You know, when we first came in, it was much more clinically based. There was a need that Liberty had for specific type of testing that needed to be done when individuals come on campus with a diagnosis. And so with my background in neuropsych, that was pretty easy to figure out a plan that would help provide that testing. And those are maybe 15 to 20 testings a year. And uh, then also with The history of neurofeedback that we've had, setting that up on site was pretty doable. But what happened when Chris and I started working together was he started asking the what-if questions. What if we do this? Or have you looked at it this way? And I consider myself rather innovative, but... If I could count all the different times Chris has said, well, how could we do that differently? Or how we had that? I mean, it's unbelievable. But what started to happen was, I mean, he really had a vision to help every student athlete on campus. That was not my focus. You know, it was initially just to do this testing. I mean, I would love to see that happen, but to find somebody that was really thinking that way, I mean, that started the inner armor journey. Back then, it was just Royer Neuroscience, which we talk a lot about, which is our concierge service. And so we were adapting our concierge service to a few of the athletes here. But Chris started to propose something that, oh, this is a whole different model. This is a a different company. This is reaching the masses, not just the few clinical people. And I didn't know if we could do it, but we're there, we're doing it, which is awesome. So
0: really is a vision, uh, sort of of scaling, right? Yes. To be able to scale this, not only in a quantifiable way, right? But also across various sports and contexts and everything else, right? Chris, can you talk a little bit about that part of the vision of how to take something that, as Doc said, was kind of a concierge-focused approach? And as he said, you had this, Vision for taking that and extending it to men, women, various sports at various stages in their development. Talk a little bit about not only what drove you to that, but how you saw that playing out and how it has played
2: out. Yeah. So, like I mentioned, I come into this role that I'm currently in as a frustrated person who going through the last 25 to 30 years, you know, of kind of looking back and being frustrated at dealing with issues that you know I felt like were preventable my focus was you talked about silos when I tell people what I do is, a, is I essentially melt it down to I just make sure people are talking to each other hmm. right that we're not because when you look at a person you know a student athlete they're a mind they're a body they're a spirit and our approach is holistic right so we're not yeah you hurt your knee we're going to take care of your knee but your knee affects other parts of you and other parts of you will affect how you can recover from that knee injury. So there are no silos. There are only handoffs, right? And back and forth. And so to do that, what we're doing needs to be scalable, right? And so it, as I'm sitting at a cracker barrel and from that day forward, everything we talked about doing and everything that was available at our fingertips, it was a no brainer for me to say, we can't, reserve this for 20 student athletes this has to be for 600 student athletes we need to be able to at least offer this to all of our student athletes and that's always been my motivation
1: yeah do you remember chris when we said this is after covid cuz you know we had to navigate all that stuff but we said let's in the next what was it the next 4 months let's try to get 2000 sessions do you remember what that what was that goal do you remember that it was probably a thousand i think we said this is like in November and we said, let's see if we can get a thousand sessions by the end of the year, by the end of the school year. Mm -hmm. And what was it that we hit? It was
2: over, over five, I think it was over (laughs) 5,000.
1: 5,000 sessions for these athletes in like under four months, five months. It was, it was crazy. I I remember when we broke through the 9,000 mark, I was like, This is what are we doing, you know, because before then it was, you know, you know, John's got this anxiety and we're going to do this session with him and, you know, getting 20 sessions in in a year with John was quite an arduous task. And now to think the thousands of sessions that we're cranking out in the two resilience labs across the hall is just crazy. Mm hmm.
0: What were some of the challenges to that? I mean, I think that for some listeners, they can imagine, you know, they can conceptualize the the concierge thing. I had, a, I had a listener, somebody that I know who's been really fascinated with the podcast, who said to me, I would love to have some of this, but I'm not rich like a pro quarterback or something like that. I mean, I can imagine those guys have all kinds of people around them that can provide all this, but I'm just an ordinary person. And so I think what's so fascinating about what you guys did and then has built from there is the ability to scale that kind of care and this kind of technology, not just to the NFL quarterback, but to thousands and thousands of ordinary people. What were the challenges in making it scalable?
2: Well, I think first of all, you have to answer the question of what do you need to do versus what's nice to do. There's a lot of things with the concierge program that are nice to do and they're really deep and they really are effective. But at the end of the day, do we need to really go that deep? Can we go a little bit, maybe just just head that way, but let's come up a little bit higher and try to create a pathway where really hitting on the fundamental things that we feel like in a five or 10 minute session can really have significant impact on our student athletes. And we had lots of conversations of, you know, what do we hit first? You know, do we, do we go with vision? Do we go with, with breathing? Well, what's the biggest return? And some of the answers to those conversations were, well, what's going to get people engaged, Mm. you know, versus, There might be two or three things that are fundamentally going to be more significant in terms of the impact that they'll have on a person's life. But if they are not engaged with what they're doing, if they're not interested, if we can't keep them engaged, then it really doesn't make any sense. Right. So, you know, we had to answer some of those questions, too. And and all the questions that we came up with, I think we answered in a way that kind of put together the program that we have currently moving now.
1: Yeah, I think like the big one for us was based on my clinical experience, you would start everything with breathing. And in the concierge side of things, we start everything with breathing, breathing and coherence and heart rate variability. And we started to experiment. Actually, this was at a pro team. We experimented with what happens if we lead with vision? Because with an athlete, you can ask the question, How important are your eyes to what you're doing? And most athletes will realize oh, wait a minute, if I didn't have my eyes, that would make this a very complicated thing to do. And so we started to work with that program. That also, that side of the program has a game controller. You're shooting at things. And we're like, well, maybe the college students, this will be a little bit closer to their world. It's like they walk in and there's their game controller. It's a very, like, you get a reward every time you. You get the point. And so we started leading with vision and that was a real, we didn't do that five years ago. For That was just recent, last two years. And we just flew. So that then I think I built some credibility in the program that when we moved into breathing, which maybe wasn't as gamified, which we've now made it more gamified. Then they leaned into that more. And so it was a lot of this discussion. I remember sitting in Chris's office and like, well, why are we switching back to, to vision first? you remember that, Chris? And It was mm-hmm. like, well, clinically, I would say no, but we got to keep him engaged, you know? And I think it worked. You know, it is working, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, that raises kind of an interesting question, I think, for a lot of listeners who've been you know listening to the podcast or intrigued by this. Talk a little bit, both of you, just about the user side of this. Like, what does it actually look like? You know, you talked about the sessions. You talked about your resilience lab. You talk about what does it actually look like for a student athlete at Liberty University? How do they actually use the
2: program? Well, it's really simple, actually. (laughs) Once you get them... Assessed, right? So the the longest part of this program is the assessment. And when I say the longest part, it's like 20 to 30 minutes.
0: I'm sorry, that's to establish a baseline in all the metrics, correct?
2: Correct. It's just to establish a baseline and it's going to allow us to see how we're moving the needle forward. It helps with buy in. It helps the coaches see how their student athletes are progressing. But once they're through that and then they start using the actual program, yeah, there's a little bit of coaching for some, not for all. I think the vision really runs itself, but the breathing, there's a little bit of coaching that needs to happen and a little bit of intervention. But those sessions, the breathing sessions are five minutes and the vision is is less than 10 minutes. So we'll have student athletes that can go in and do two things and they're out of there in 15 minutes. Um they can do that on their way to study hall. We're really fortunate here because where our labs are set up in our athletic facility, it's on the second floor and the second and the third floor are where we do academic enhancement, right? So our student athletes are, are coming through this building all the time. If they're in the training room or they have a workout in the weight room or they're here for academic enhancement, for them to pop in for five to 15 minutes is super easy for them to knock that out.
0: Doc, how would you describe it for the user as you've seen this evolve? What's it like and what's the experience like? And particularly, how does that experience evolve? So the first time the user begins and then as they do more and more and more sessions, how are they experiencing progress?
1: Yeah, I mean, in a setting like this, where we're working with large numbers of people. There's three kind of things that I see is one is the tech is getting the tech right and making it very user friendly. And we've worked at that, honed that down. We have this device that's used that goes on the finger that can measure skin temperature, skin conductance, which is the electrical current in the skin, heart rate variability, coherence. You can also use it as a breathing belt if you put it on your stomach. And so teaching them how to use the technology Is important. All these students are working on computers and doing more complicated video games than this is. A lot of stuff is cloud based, so their data is going up. That makes sense to them. They use their username and password. I think the second piece is is just education on what am I doing and why am I doing this. You know, I always say education is the bridge to engagement, and that we have to provide good education and. I would say while we're getting better at that, that can become more improved over time. Is education super important? Then, in this type of setting, data is very, very important because you have people that are maybe one or two steps removed from the athlete. So, you have the trainers, they tend to be our conduit because they're used to working kind of in medical. So, not that this is medical, but they're just used to seeing reports and data and stuff, so we send a utilization report to them of what the team that they're responsible for is doing, and then they translate that over the coaches and we We found that all of these things are trial and error. We found like you can have kids training students training and getting a thousand sessions, but if the coach doesn't know like what's going on then you don't have that support. And so you have to kind of bring this whole family together and communicate like we talked to earlier to be able to get success. And so data is important as well and how that's distributed. Finding the balance, I think you'll see this even out there in this space that some companies give you a lot of data, but no education. You know, some companies give you education, but not very good data and maybe no coaching. So we've tried to, at this from a different angle where we're trying to address all these different things at once. Chris, let's talk
0: about what it takes to forge and using that word pretty intentionally, right? What does it take to forge student athletes that are healthy in every dimension of their lives? I would think that it would be a temptation for an athletic department to sort of focus on the athletic side of their life, obviously. How are they performing? on the field or on the court or whatever the case may be, in the pool, whatever, uh, and maybe neglect the other parts of their life. And maybe there's a little bit of a dimension of looking at their academics so that they're still eligible to play. But you're really looking at the totality of the human being. How are they doing in life? And during the few years that you have with them, are you not only forging them to play their sport, but are you forging them to become useful and healthy and productive members of society in all aspects of their lives, emotionally, spiritually, and so forth. So what are the challenges and opportunities in forging these student-athletes at this stage in their life? And what are the traditional approaches versus how liberty is approaching that?
2: Yeah. So that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, <laughs> you got this. I, yeah. <laughs> So you know, kind of what I spoke from at the beginning was we're looking at our student athletes as a whole person, right? There's a there's a mental piece to them, there's a physical piece, there's a spiritual piece. I think it starts with just programming, right? So we are creating um, a structure around our student athletes, whether it's our strength strength and conditioning staff, a, a nutrition, a dietitian that works with our student athletes, the, the athletic trainer we also have a very robust what we call our shepherds program which is basically a, a team chaplain program that we've been able to scale out for all of our all of our teams you know that that can come along our student alongside of our student athletes and just kind of be ingrained in that team and what they're doing and just kind of be that support you know for our student athletes so i think we've created a structure around our student athletes the challenge is always what you what you take advantage of and what you, what the student athlete receives, and we can give them all the resources in the world, but if they're not going to sleep and they're not going to hydrate and they're not going to take care of their body and and do those things then you know that's that's all part of it too. so as Doc mentioned earlier, there's always a constant education piece that goes on around everything that we're doing, trying to drip feed our student athletes with information and strategies for how to stay engaged and how to use the resources the specifically to the inner armor piece right so this is this is also a piece that's is it going to make an athlete better on the field 100% right so they can see better they can control their autonomic nervous system they can regulate better they can go from sympathetic to parasympathetic they can control the things that they're saying to themselves that are kind of sabotaging you know all the work that they've put into the thing for 100% but it's also a tool that's going to impact them academically it's a tool that's going to impact them also in the mental the mental performance or the mental health space we have figured out a way to we see the value of, of this performance tool and how it can really move the needle for our kids in the mental health space, right? So one of the things we try to do is create gates, right, where we where we say if our student athletes have access to a certain thing, a certain a tool or a certain process that will help them, we, we kind of will give you something, we'll give you this tool, and then we want you to kind of go through this gate, you take the next step and you go through this gate and then we'll give you some more and then we'll kind of, so we've created these, these pathways even in our mental health program where we know that a coherent student athlete, when they go to a, say a counseling session, if they walk into that room in a coherent state, the value of that conversation and the depth of that conversation will start sooner and be deeper for the entirety of that, that conversation than it would be if we used the first 15, 20, 30 minutes of that conversation to get into that state. So we can, see, we can see the value of that. We also can see the value of how that's preventable, right? So if there's some physiological tools we can give our student athletes that actually helps with anxiety, that helps with self-talk, that helps with the typical things that student athletes deal with, both off the field and on the field, we know that that's going to have. We, we know that that's just going to have a huge impact for them. So, so it's creating this ecosystem and the, and these tools. I think traditionally, it's you know, hey, you go to the weight room, hey, you eat good good food, hey, try to sleep, try to hydrate. Those are all low hanging fruit, and we're always about low hanging fruit, right? Telling our student athletes that you know we can. Measure this, and we can measure that, and we can do all these fun things. But if you're not going to sleep and you're not going to hydrate, those other things really don't matter all that much. So we got to do those things first, and then we can continue to go deeper with some of our other tools as well.
0: Hey, Doc, I'd like to get you to weigh in here from maybe a different perspective. You know, as Chris is saying, he comes to this from a sort of a clinical side of sports training, right? Athletics training. But you come from this, come to this from a neuropsych background. And as you've shared before in other episodes, your neuropsych clinical career started out in, with families and children. And so you've really seen the development, you know, in your career, you've worked with the development from, from children through young people, you know, adolescents to young people. So when you look at these student athletes, maybe bringing that perspective to it. What do you think some of the opportunities and challenges are for these young people?
1: Yeah, from a neuropsych perspective, when we track the brain and its receptivity to learning new things, this four or five years that they're here matches, aligns perfectly with when the brain can really learn some things that it can take with it. The brain can learn anytime, but This period of time seems to be one in which it's just a sponge for information. And so the question is, is what, what are we teaching it? Which habits is it learning? Is it learning to, well, if I stay up all night to cram for this exam, that's the way I'm going to do the rest of my life. Or does it learn patterns to sleep well, manage its emotions and those kind of things. So for me, this is like, I love working in pro sports. You know, I love the different things that we do, but This is my biggest passion, is this group and what you can do for this group. Now, they are getting pulled in a lot of different directions. You know, they're not just asked to play their sport. They also have to perform academically. They're forming new relationships that may go with them the rest of their lives. And so we don't want to just enable them while they're here because these resources aren't always going to be available for them. We want to empower them for the future. And so that's what I see that we're able to do it in armors, give them something to take on with them. So we've talked about some of these numbers before, but the power side of the program that we do, where we teach them the breathing and the heart rate, um, there's this study of 11,000 people with the exact same thing that we're doing in nine weeks. so that we're going way more than nine weeks with these student athletes. But nine weeks, the 11,000 people, decrease in depression. decrease in anxiety, 48%. Say that again. Decrease in depression 56%, decrease in anxiety, 48%. You know, one of the biggest dropout issues in college is emotional things. I mean, you know, when you're looking at what it takes to get somebody in the door at a college and then them have have them drop out in the first year, and you're looking at retention and we can do something about that for now but also for the rest of their lives we're teaching them a skill that's going to go with them and 10 years from now something you know hits them that they weren't expecting they've learned how to be resilient we've taught them the skill of resilience and that's really our mission yes i you know love people to have better batting average fantastic and i want them to be you know Better at their golf game, but it's really this emotional side and being able for them to see that there's more out of them than they actually realize.
0: So, Chris, that brings up the issue of stress. And, you know, we've talked about stress in sort of two modalities. One is sort of constructive stress that can make somebody stronger, and obviously a destructive stress that corrodes and erodes somebody's strength. Can you talk about the kinds of stresses that these student athletes are under and how you work to sort of emphasize or create opportunities for constructive stress and minimize the destructive stress? And where are the limits and how do you stay on the rails with that?
2: Yeah. So as I always say, our student athletes are put under stress on purpose, right? Because just the principle of overload, right? I can't make you stronger unless I stress you. And then you have a recovery effect that if you do all the things the way you should, the body tends to recover at at a stronger level. So we understand that. I mean, that's just basic science. That's what we do in the weight room all the time is we stress you. There's lots of stresses. There's the stress of life. There's the stress of practice, the stress of games, the stress of interacting with teammates, the stress of Mick load and, and tests and, and all the other things in life that, that, you know, come after them. I think finding ways to measure stress is something that's just sports science has has tried to get better at is getting better at whether you're measuring a load physiologically measuring that, like how much, how, what distance you've run, what was your heart rate and, and those types of measures versus just asking somebody how they feel there's a big correlation to how recovered i feel in terms of how actually recovered the nervous system is so those are important things and and we try to implement those things as much as we can i think i you know it's what i tell my staff all the time right if if the performance staff and the coaching staff if they're not collaborating together and they're not talking about these things and they're not looking at these things then that's when stresses can kind of get out of control right it's too much kids aren't recovering to to maybe no fault of their own or maybe maybe it's their own lifestyle habits that are causing the stresses to build up in a way where they're they're not recovering again it goes back to am i sleeping correctly am i am i getting enough fuel in me after i after i finish a workout am i waiting too long you know wh- what's the education on when you should refuel and things like that. So I think reducing those stresses is something you try to do but I think it's impossible to you know for 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 any staff to to totally cut out of an athlete's life because they bring so much to the table. Since we're talking about the tools that we're using, I think these are the things that allow us to give the athlete the tools to withstand the stresses, right? So so the mental piece, for instance, the practice is what the practice is. It's planned out. It's usually scientific. It's based on the time of the year, who the opponent is, what the day of the week it is, what that student athlete should be able to withstand, um, what they bring to the table in terms of what's going on in their life and how they're dealing with it or not dealing with it those are the variables that the performance staff can't really necessarily control. So the student athlete has the responsibility to try to have the tools in their in their toolbox, so to speak, so they can control the, the other things in life. We tell our athletes, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when, right? And so the more things you stack in your, in, in your favor, the more tools that you put in, in your toolbox. And I'm talking about Our resilience program, the the inner armor tools, so to speak. The more of those things they can stack in their favor when it happens, whatever that is. Somebody not looking at you, you know, the the way you like, or or getting in your face a little bit, trying to motivate you, but it comes across the wrong way. Anything, family issues, life. When life happens, are you resilient enough to control the things you can control and and kind of not put yourself in a deficit to cause injury or to cause you to back up or to cause a poor performance. It's not a perfect science. It's an education all the time in education. But if, you, if you're not equipping yourself the right way, you have little chance of, of coming out the other side of the things like that in, in a good spot.
0: I, I hear you saying, I, I think, right, we have this illusion, maybe a delusion. <laughs> of compartmentalization mm-hmm. in our culture, right? The notion that I can sort of wall off parts of my life, like this is home, this is work, this is the sport, this is this. But what I hear you saying is that compartmentalization is a, is a fantasy. We can't really compartmentalize that. Either of you guys want to talk a little bit about that and how what you're doing, both at Inner Armor and Liberty, sort of helps manage that stuff that sort of bleeds from one compartment of life to the other.
1: Yeah, I'll chime in. And I think this goes back to we opened the podcast by saying that the father of the term dynamic resilience is actually Chris Crisola. But that is all about dynamic resilience is the ability to flex when the environment is changing. So I've been doing this a long time, you know, close to 30 years. And you learn certain techniques that you do to manage your body. But when the environment changes, sometimes you're you're not adapting that technique. And this is something that Chris brought up way before I ever even was willing to make any changes. But I you remember this conversation, Chris, we were you asked me about breathing and you were like well, if I'm running around all day long, I'm stressed, right? And then I come in and I sit down and I start breathing. Well, my heart and my body's going to change, right? Yeah. Well, what happens if it goes too far the other direction? <laughs> and, and, and now I want to sleep, you know, now like, but I, I got to get back to work, right? And some people out there have probably tried doing breathing or meditation and you find yourself You know, falling asleep. And that's what Chris was kind of like bringing up. Like, you can't just do the same thing every time. Or what happens one minute or two minutes into this? And I was just like, well, you just keep doing it. You know, I can remember, like, what's he talking about? And then (laughs) about a year later, he brought it up again. And I had had some type of experience that I finally actually listened to him. And I said, you know what? You're right. Like, we're changing. Every minute, the world around us is changing, and we have to be able to adapt our tools to work with that. And so Chris and I started to work on the science of the breathing and how it interacts with the heart, that maybe there's a time to speed up the breathing. Maybe there's a time to slow down the breathing. Maybe there's a time to do different things with the breathing, which then started this whole concept of dynamic resilience which I have never seen that done in behavioral health in any form like what we're doing right now, where we're literally in real time with real time data, adapting the body to the specific situation that it's in.
2: Yeah. I'll add one thing to that too. I mean, we've all, we've all sat, you know, we've all, been in the room and, and, and had a coach or, or, or seen a coach, you know, tell the team, Hey, look, we're going to go practice for two hours. There's nothing you can do to change your circumstances. So nothing you can do in the next two hours to change your circumstances. So just forget about it and, and, and go practice and, and, and where there's some truth to that, you know, on, on, on a certain level where you, you don't need to bring everything with you into that you know, into that practice. And the truth is, you, there's nothing you can do in two hours, in that next two hours to change your circumstances. Where the truth is, that might be truthful, but the reality is, there's some people are equipped to do that, and there's some people that aren't equipped to do that. And I would say you could make everyone more equipped, at whatever level they are of handling stress, to do that, to say, you know what, I can't change. The fact that I just bombed my test. I can't change the fact that I just got a phone call and I just got some bad news and I can't change my circumstances over the next two hours. So I'm just going to kind of put it out of my mind. Um, it's very hard to do, but there are ways th- that we're doing that our student athletes can do where they can at least give themselves an opportunity to, you know, on a normal day, I, I you know, if I've got these tools, maybe I can improve that by 20% or maybe I can improve that by 30%. And maybe I avoided injury by doing that or maybe I had a bit of a better performance or maybe I got better that day versus getting worse or, or staying the same just because I had the tools to regulate my autonomic nervous system going into that two-hour practice. Yep. W- wow.
0: Hey, as we're kind of winding down the clock here for the two-minute drill, Mm -hmm. Chris, I I want to kind of give you the last word and have you maybe prognosticate a little bit. Where do you see the world of collegiate athletics going in terms of how student-athletes are cared for and developed? And how is Liberty University at the cutting edge of that pioneering new approaches?
2: Yeah, I, I think man, it's just, it's not just programming, right? Uh We're, we're so conditioned to add another, this do another program. You know, you have to, you have to give people tools that, that they can internalize. Right. So Counseling is a great example. There's a lot of, there's not anyone that wouldn't benefit from talking to someone that's usually very helpful for all of us to do. However, if you couple that with your ability to regulate, again, I keep going back to regulating your autonomic nervous system, Uh your ability to control your thoughts, your ability to calm down, your ability to ramp up, your ability to, to just see life from a more, more coherent state I, I tell you it's it's just an advantage I think it's an advantage that if our when our student athletes take advantage of those tools um, and add to all the other things that I, I really think across the board at, at most Division one institutions you get good coaching you, you or great coaching you get great strength and conditioning coaching and, and great care for for issues but trying to find these little Things that that are different. I think that's you know I think that's really the key. Mental health is not going anywhere but up, and I, I think you just f- forget performance, which we know we can move the needle on with with these tools. If we can change that aspect, which we really think we can, and we are, that's really an advantage. That's really an advantage for our student athletes.
1: Awesome.
0: Well. This has been a fantastic conversation. And I know Doc is at Liberty for the week. And if you want to learn more about Liberty University, Liberty Athletics, go to liberty.edu. And if you'd like to learn more about Inner Armor and Royer Neuroscience and the things that Dr. Royer is doing at places like Liberty and other institutions and teams and with ordinary people and elite athletes and everybody in between, go to forgeinnerarmor.com. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Thank you, Greg. (laughs) Thank you, Greg. Take care. This has been the Inner Armor podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.